Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The following podcast contains dramatizations of actual events. Certain situations, dialogue, names, and locations may have been changed. Some scenes are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. From the beginning, there was always something a bit odd about identical twins, Robert and Stephen Spahalski. They committed crimes in competition with one another. The Spahalskis came up frequently. They were powerful young men. And as they grew, so did their disturbing behavior. It is like the Xerox of evil, like two halves of a lethal whole. And it would all end with a shocking twist. It's like the hair in the back of your neck stands up. I've never come across this before. They're not like you and I. They don't feel guilt. They don't think like that. There's us. The shocking story of the Spahalski twins begs the question... Is evil born, or is it made? Rochester, New York. It's a working-class city on the south shore of Lake Ontario. Rochester, it's a medium-sized city. It's about 200,000, 250,000. Like a lot of cities in the Northeast, it's kind of uh, maybe past its heyday or whatever. Rochesterians are very hardened to crime because we have had more than our share. And most frustrating for the Rochester PD is the number of murders that go unsolved each year. It bothers you. It's, it's troublesome. It weighs heavy upon you. The victim's families, they call you on a regular basis. Do you have any new information on the case? Every detective dreams about putting an unsolved murder to rest. And one morning in November of 2005, that's exactly what happens for Detective Glenn Weather. It was November 8th, 2005, about quarter to 11 or so, I walked in the front door of the public safety building. I looked to my right and I saw a tall, white male talking to some people at the headquarters desk. And I looked at him and I immediately recognized him uh, as Robert Spahalski. Robert Spahalski is a name well known to Weather and his colleagues. 
We knew that he was active uh, in, in, um, with prostitutes. We knew he was an active drug user. We knew he had the tendency for violence. But none of Robert's previous crimes would prepare them for what they were about to hear. One of them motioned me over and said, hey, this guy just said that he killed somebody. And he put her in the basement of his house. It's a shocking admission, and Detective Weather knows he needs to quickly find backup. I was on call that day, and Glenn briefed me on what happened, and he said, listen, we have a homicide, but the guy is inside the building. I brought him upstairs to the fourth floor of the public safety building where I worked. And we actually placed him in one of our interview rooms. And it's a pretty small room. And Spahalski's a big guy. I mean, I just remember him being tall and very wiry. As Robert sits in an interrogation room, another team of investigators is quickly dispatched to his home. Will they discover the body there? They sent a contingency of investigators to go to Spencer Street. They entered and went into the basement area where they found the body of a, a female on the floor. The gruesome scene is exactly as Robert described. She was obviously strangled. Uh, there was some uh, sock on one of her feet that had some blood stain evidence on it, we believed. And also a radio down there, too, that looked like may have had some blood stain on it. The victim is 54-year-old Vivian Irizarry. From behind the walls of a maximum security prison, Robert Spahalski remembers the murder and his victim like it was yesterday. I loved that woman. I knew her kids, her parents, grandfather. I had her, her kids stay at my house when they were in hard times. Vivian was Robert's friend and neighbor, and as they'd done many times before, the two got high. But this time, something goes horribly wrong. I don't remember picking a hammer up. Um, it just, the crack and uh, the voices just over, over, overcame, just overcomes you. I hit her in the head with a hammer. You hit her in the head about four times. And she fell down. And once she fell down, he just knew that she was hurt. She was uh, brain dead. And she bled, and she bled, and she bled, and it's like I had to clean up an ocean of blood. And I uh, tied a rope around her neck to stop her from breathing, and she died. To Robert, it's a mercy killing. And as his high comes crashing down, he becomes overwhelmed by the magnitude of what he's done. It's not unusual for people to walk in and say, I've, I've killed somebody, but it's unusual that they actually have. As detectives dig deeper into Robert's past, they learn there is something else about Robert, something that distinguishes him from any other killer in Rochester, or possibly in history. I learned he had a twin brother who had actually committed a murder and was in prison. Steven Spahalski is Robert's identical twin. He's been in prison for over 20 years. It is like the Xerox of evil. It's like the same person twice, like two halves of a lethal whole. It's a bizarre twist to an already grisly story. I have dealt with brothers that have separately committed homicides before, but twins, no, I've never come across this before. I believe there have been twins who have worked as teams to commit murders. 
But here you had two twins who committed murders individually. I have never found another case anything like it. As the news of real-life killer twins rocks Rochester, hard questions had to be asked. I mean, when you're talking to Spahalskis, you just can't get away from the identical twin connection. And that's what just makes them such a great case study of this issue. What made the Spahalskis into real-life killer twins? Was it their upbringing, their drug abuse, or were they just born that way? I think it's a combination of, that created this two-headed monster of you know, the killer twins. The key to untangling the twisted minds of Robert and Steven Spahalski may lie in their bloody journey from identical kids to identical killers. They didn't commit crimes as a team. They committed crimes in competition with one another. 
Did the Spahalski brothers push each other to evil, or were they just born that way? Stephen Spahalski was born five minutes before his identical twin brother Robert on December 12, 1954, in the town of Elmira, New York. Author Michael Benson has communicated with Robert for years. Spahalski's had a wonderful childhood from any, any perspective. They grew up in a big family, in a big farmhouse, land on both sides of the street. I have all good memories. I grew up on a 48-acre house, and um, we had a lot of room to play. We had a uh, Shemong River there. We did a lot of fishing, did a lot of biking. Dad owned a dairy, and the Spolskys had money. Everything was nice when they were kids. Beautiful, beautiful way to grow up in upstate New York. Just lovely. And from a young age, Robert and Stephen inspired fascination, like most identical twins. Me being a twin is magical. I think it was real cool. Uh, we used to trade places in school. i take his classes, he'd take mine. The Spahalski brothers kept to themselves in school, but their athletic abilities made them famous across Elmira. Spahalskis were exceptional athletes. At Elmira Free Academy, they were stars on the gymnastics and track team. There was talk of them getting college scholarships. It's a beautiful thing. Gymnastics is pretty beautiful. I specialized in ring and high bar and parallel bars. He specialized in side horse and tumbling. They're both these sort of live, muscular characters. Stephen, I think, had these dreams of actually going to the Olympics as a, as a gymnast. And their athletic prowess naturally led these two boys into competition with one another. The twins started when they were teenagers a game of one-upmanship. They would start daring and double-daring each other to do things. Like me and my twin, when we were growing up, we used to do handstands on top of bridges and do a pirouette and come down without falling 10, 20 stories off the building. You know what I mean, you, you make a mistake, you're dead. And from the start, there was one twin who stood apart from the other. Robert was always the dominant one. He seemed to have a harder edge. As they grew into teenagers, that edge became tinged with violence. Took a 12-gauge shotgun, put it up to his dad's favorite pig's head, and shot the hog's brains out. And I asked, I said, you know, did you do it because you're, you were mad at your father? He said, no, I did it because I wanted pork chops. I really wanted to taste that pig. We butchered them, but we uh, you know, chopped them up, put them in a the pan, and ate them. <laughs> Robert is a classic example of a sociopath. Robert's mind is always on himself. Not only is there a, a, a sick selfishness, but there's also a sick shallowness. You know, this pig would taste good. I was mostly just focused on the pork chops. Already, the Spahalski brothers were gaining a reputation for disturbing behavior. The way I see sociopathy, it's a birth defect. And I would think that that's part of being identical that if one has a flaw, the other has the flaw also. And their chilling behavior grew worse when their family was suddenly ripped apart. Unfortunately for the family, Dad liked his secretary too much, ended up running off with her. I was really at a loss. My father was a, uh, he was the backbone of our family growing up. So at a time when they strongly need a, a male figure, 
know, they have no social guidance whatsoever. I didn't have nobody to keep me straight. He just said, keep your nose clean, stay out of trouble. I was already getting into trouble. The anger caused by the disruption in the Spahalski household and the combination of not being able to experience guilt created this two-headed monster. Making matters worse, the late 1960s were in full swing and drugs quickly filled the void created by Dad's departure. I was always into trouble. I was always my own worst enemy. I started doing drugs when I was 15. I asked Robert what sort of drugs he, uh, he did when he was 15 years old, and he said, name it. Weed, speed, crystal meth, uh, acid. I've been on like 300 acid trips. Me and my twin had a formula in life. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. He says he took LSD 300 times, which is every day for 10 months, and that will disrupt your synapses in your brain. It's chemically induced psychosis. I was offered a full scholarship at West Point on a gymnastics scholarship in my high school, but I turned it down because I was on drugs. Eventually, uh, I don't think that they thought about anything else. Drugs took over for both of them. To afford their spiraling drug habits, the twins turned their competitive instincts towards petty crime. There seemed to be somewhat of a seamless progression, though, from competing in sports to competing for who could steal the most money to buy drugs with. We used our gymnastic skills to uh, do burglaries and stuff like that. They didn't commit crimes as a team. They committed crimes in competition with one another. I dare you to break into that house and steal some jewelry. I dare you to take that car and drive it home. We were competing to see who can get the better stuff. I always thought it was romantic in my own way to be a burglar. It leaves a smile on my face when I think of it. If any crime was committed in the Elmira area, the Spahalski brothers were always the first suspects. The Spahalskis came up frequently. They were a couple of young guys that were easily identifiable. They were both gymnasts, and again, they were six foot two, 175 each, chiseled, you know, right down from the shoulders, right down to real thin waist, and powerful young men, and that was a, always a concern. We just try to get into places, be sneaky, be that silent one in the night. Who did that? I mean, we were focused like that, and uh, it was just a game. Identical twins are pretty rare to begin with, and they present for law enforcement some unusual problems. For one thing, eyewitnesses can never be sure which twin they saw do something. And while they will have varying fingerprints, they share the same DNA. They also will tend to think and act alike in the same situation. And it was Robert who inspired the most fear. Always a loose cannon as a child, he had become something much more menacing. Between the two brothers, Robert was the one who seemed to show a greater criminal proclivity. The one that people pictured as the young thug, the young criminal, the one who was likely to spend his life in prison. Just kind of a scary guy. And the Elmira police suspected the Spahalski twins had zeroed in on one group in particular. The Spahalski twins are predators, and they're, they're out hunting. And when they see a vulnerable target, that's where they're most likely to strike. And at that time, the most vulnerable people in Elmira were gay men who were forced to go underground for gay sex. In Elmira, there, there was a gay community, very small, um, very insulated, pretty much stuck to themselves. That's just the way it was at the time. 
And these terrified men were potentially easy prey. And we had a number of people who would talk to us, and they told us that a lot of the gays were being mugged by these two big guys. And uh, they would hang out in those areas or hitchhike and try to get picked up by one of these guys and then beat him up and take his money. The Spahalskis would stop at nothing to make a quick buck to support their escalating drug use. And it would soon take a dark turn. It was a community that had not seen a crime for, for years, and this one was particularly savage. The dangerous competition between Robert and Stephen will culminate in the most vicious crime to hit Elmira in over 40 years. Robert and Steven Spahalski are identical twins who have menaced the town of Elmira, New York. They're running wild. They're, they're stealing cars. They're, they're committing burglaries. They're taking a lot of drugs. As the twins continued their heavy drug use, they competed to see who could commit the bigger crime. And their competition is about to get deadly. Ronald Ripley is a popular member of the Elmira community. Ronald Ripley uh, owned a storefront on East 14th Street in Elmira Heights. Ronald Ripley was about 45 years old, I can't remember. But he ran a business called the Salad Master uh, Cookware. And it had a storefront very similar to this one. And he sold high-end cooking equipment, pots and pans, cooking utensils, and this sort of stuff. Pretty well-known figure in the community. Uh, just. Yeah, by most accounts, and an upstanding citizen. On the night before Thanksgiving 1971, Ronald Ripley heads out for groceries, but he never comes home. The next morning, his lifeless body is discovered in the basement of his cooking store. Pat Patterson is called in to photograph the crime scene. There was a white male um, laying right at the foot of the stairs. The front pockets had been pulled out and were empty. The victim received a significant wound to the back of the head, it looked like he'd been hit with a hammer. He had been stabbed uh, six or seven times, I think, in the abdomen, chest, and side of the neck, and side of the head. There was no indication of a struggle. He probably died fairly quickly. Initial speculation is that this is a simple robbery gone horribly wrong. We were kind of thinking at the time that he may have come in and stumbled onto a burglar, had a, a confrontation, and uh, was assaulted and murdered. But the manner of death suggests something far more sinister. He's firstly bludgeoned him, essentially punched a little hole through the skull. And then, at that point, when the victim is helpless, then the individual takes his knife out and stabs him multiple times. That indicates to me a, a lot of rage. The brutal crime sends a shockwave through the normally tranquil town. It was a community that had not seen a crime for, for years, and this one was particularly savage. And it's only a matter of hours before police uncover their first clue. The first real indication that focused law enforcement on the Spahalskis was Ronald Ripley's car discovered very near Robert Bruce and Stephen Spahalski's home. And they found cars abandoned in that precise spot before they were stolen by the Spahalskis. So it's like they put their fingerprint on it. Less than 24 hours later, a hot tip confirms Pat Patterson's suspicions. There was a witness that said he had seen the car in that area that night 
and thought it was unusual. And there were two big young men in the car. And so that kind of piqued everybody's interest in the Spolsky brothers. Given the nature of the crime, the focus falls on one twin in particular. It was Robert that was the, the real problem at that time. But he was the one that could be more violent. Perhaps Robert had finally outdone his twin once and for all. With Robert in their sights, the Elmira PD swings into action. We picked Robert up and brought him in for questioning, and he agreed to a polygraph examination. He was very cocky. He thought this was cute. And the results of the polygraph are shocking. The results were that he showed no deception in terms of committing the crime, but did show deception with regard to knowing who did do the crime. He clearly knew and wouldn't tell us who committed the murder. And there's one person Pat Patterson knows Robert would go to any lengths to defend. Closest person to him was his brother, Stephen, and that's why we reflected on, on him as the next logical target. Now convinced they've been after the wrong twin, state police are able to get a wiretap on Stephen's phone. And when they're listening in on the Spahalski's phone, they hear Stephen threatening someone, saying, if you don't do what I say, you know, you're going to get what I gave Ron Ripley. The recorded threat is enough to get a search warrant for the Spahalski home. They searched the house and found the keys to Ronald Ripley's car in the sewage system of the house. So it was pretty clear that he'd been flushed out of the toilet. Stephen is arrested on May 4th, 1972. Investigators brace for a difficult interrogation, but they are wrong. Stephen Spahalski confessed to killing Ronald Ripley, and he gave a statement and uh, talked about why he did it and how it happened. How Ron Ripley and the Spahalskis came together is a matter of conjecture. I think there's a belief in some circles that, that Stephen you know, took advantage of him and killed him, and they were perhaps meeting for you know, a sexual encounter. That's what set off the behavior and his anger and led to the killing. The police explanation is that it was a robbery gone bad, that Stephen had gone to the, uh, to the store to rob it. Stephen said that Ronald Ripley had threatened him and had a knife, and they got into a scuffle. And it just doesn't square with the Ronald Ripley and his background. There's no, no evidence of any violence at all. His motivations for murder may forever remain a mystery. But even today, Stephen seems to have no remorse over the vicious crime. I killed the person because he deserved it, you know what I mean? He violated somewhere and... Time for him to go, that's all. And neither does Robert. He killed somebody. To me, at the time, it was a good reason. It shocked me, definitely. But I still, as a twin, stood by his side. And uh, you made the call, I stand by you. That's life in the fast lane, that's all. I'm not trying to get famous off it, you know. When he talks of the Ripley murder, Stephen will tell you that what happened should have happened. I mean, he'll tell you that you know, every stab wound was earned. Stephen's guilty plea puts him in jail. The competition between the twins seems to be over, and Stephen has won. Robert is left to adjust to life without his twin. It was traumatic to me. He uh, was my best friend. Three cents lost. But Robert quickly resumes his life of crime 
and it isn't long before his lifestyle catches up with him. Robert gets his own apartment and continues committing larger and larger robberies. He's got a bunch of friends he's hanging around with, and they decide they're going to knock off a music store. I think I got like $23,000 worth of uh, guitar equipment, amplifiers, guitars, and uh, one thing led to another, and they turned state evidence against me. Robert is quickly arrested for the robbery and soon sent to jail. And in a strange twist of fate, he winds up in the same prison as his brother, Stephen. It's not unusual to have siblings in the state system. It's unusual to have them in the same prison. Identical twins especially. I don't think it's supposed to happen. This is Elmira Prison. We're in the same company, same shop. We did everything together there. And the Spahalski brothers always have each other's back. In prison, all of a sudden, these predators become potential prey. And to avoid that, they do a very smart thing. They, they, they use their, their similitude and their athletic ability to keep potential bullies at bay. There were times where they would walk across gym floors or prison yards on their hands together. We like doing things like that to shock people with our abilities. I mean, it's an unspoken thing, don't mess with me. Those people, they know, don't mess with me. Whether you're in a maximum security prison or on a playground, crazy beats tough every time. After serving time for the murder of Ronald Ripley, Stephen Spahalski is paroled in 1979. He quickly returns to Elmira, and it isn't long before Stephen pushes it too far. He gets a partner in crime, and they start to commit armed robberies. He's already done six years in prison. He's, he's a mature man now. And what's he do? Goes out and commits more crimes, violent crimes. Again, Stephen's up in the ante on Robert. He's putting the pressure on. You want to commit a bigger crime than me, you're going to have to work. The now 26-year-old is busted for armed robbery and attempted kidnapping then sentenced to 30 years in Attica prison. Robert is soon paroled and picks up where Stephen left off. Once a promising young athlete, Robert has become a hardened thug. And his life is about to take an unimaginably dark turn. It has been over a decade since Robert's parole, and old habits die hard. Sex, money, and drugs continue to control his life. He worked as a pimp, he worked as a prostitute, he sold drugs. I discovered crack in 1990. I tried it once and I was hooked. You know, it's a bad drug, it's a demon. Crack quickly ravages Robert's body and mind. Before I hit crack, uh, it was just recreational. Until I hit that hard one. And then it completely changed my behavior. My mental patterns uh, made me schizophrenic, made me homicidal. And Robert is about to form a much deadlier habit. On November 8, 2005, Robert Spahalski walks into a Rochester police station and does the unthinkable. I saw a tall male talking to some people at the headquarters desk. One of them motioned me over and said, hey, this guy just said that he killed somebody. I guess on my own worst enemy, I turned myself in, and I gave him the loaded gun to put me away. 
to make sure I don't kill nobody else. Robert is a murderer, just like his identical twin, Stephen. But as detectives press Robert for more details, the interrogation suddenly takes a strange turn. Once we got into the conversation, he stood up and he started pacing, walking around the room, walking up and down, bending over, putting his arms behind his back, stretching. And he just kept saying, I just want to get this one off my chest now. I want to tell you guys what happened. Robert drops a bombshell. The murder of 54-year-old Vivian Irizarry in 2005 is not the first time he's killed. In fact, Robert has been on a killing spree for over a decade. And it all began on a cold winter's night almost 15 years earlier. Marion Armstrong was a good kid. She grew up in Rochester. She uh, got a couple years of college and ended up getting addicted to drugs crippled with crack addiction and forced to be a hooker to get by. Living right across the street from Moraine is Robert Spahalski. They knew each other because they were both in the sex industry and they, they were neighbors. And uh, it was a cold night. And he said, you know, can I come over? I'll bring some crack and we'll smoke. And uh, they went over to her apartment. He said he hooked up with her. They smoked about $100 worth of drugs. He said that she demanded money from him and said to her, hey, you know, we just smoked $100 worth of my drugs. I'm not going to give you any money. He said that she got loud. She got up in his face. They started to fight. And he started to strangle her. And he grabbed a uh, hair straightening iron and grabbed the, the electrical cord on that, wrapped around her neck. It's a lot of work to kill somebody. It's not like the movies where they're instantly dead. It takes a minute. And minutes later, Moraine is gone. It brings Robert even, I think. Now they've both killed. And Robert has known for a long time that he enjoys killing, right from the time he shot the pig. All of these clues that we had when he was younger, that he kills for pleasure, it's all true. And now that he's done it, he's going to keep doing it. Tony Campione is one of the first to arrive at the crime scene the next morning. There was uh, several uh, neighbors at that point had gathered, and that's when I first uh, noticed this individual who I approached, and uh, I asked him what his name was, and he said, uh, Robert Spahalski. Something about Robert rubs Detective Campione the wrong way. It was just a gut feeling, so I went back to my office and ran a criminal history check on him and he had been involved in several different things. Digging in a little bit further, I found out he had a twin brother doing estate time. I couldn't say 100%, you know, that I knew he did it, but it's like the hair in the back of your neck stands up when you get involved in something like this. There's just too many coincidences. But for the time being, Robert has gotten away with it, and he is just getting started. That first one's the toughest one, and then after that, it's just, it snowballs. Some people, they get that taste of blood, and that becomes a, a high, that becomes an addiction. I was out of control. My mind was sick. My mind was very sick, serial, serial killer sick. Meanwhile, 50 miles away in Attica Prison, Stephen is undergoing an unusual transformation. While Robert is out, Stephen is in prison doing his 30-year stint, and his personality is changing. He's discovering his feminine side. Stephen was going through this sort of metamorphosis where he was deciding that 
He would prefer to be a woman. He would find ways to sort of take available products in prison and perhaps, you know, craft some eyeshadow and perhaps some rouge and things like that. I don't think anybody wanted to cross him still. I think he still knew that if you crossed Stephen, you were in for a fight. Whether man or woman, Stephen and his deeds always weigh heavily on Robert's mind. Robert's mind is always on himself. And even when his mind is on Stephen, it's just part of himself. Stephen's an extension of him. It's like your other half. I mean, you just wonder what he's thinking about your actions or something like that. It's hard to explain. To compete with his brother is to compete with himself. There is not the differentiation between me and you as you would think there would be. They don't think like that. There's us. And it isn't long before Robert kills again. Rochester is in the grip of a heat wave. Robert and his new girlfriend, Adrian Berger, decide to stay cool by staying inside. Adrian Berger was a good friend of mine. She was a neighbor. She wanted to live the block away. I was with her one night. It was a warm night. We were going to have sex that night. Adrian worked in a factory uh, in the Rochester area. Robert was kind of living off of her. Robert said that they started fooling around, started having sex. Something came over him, and he just he started strangling her. No reason. I looked completely lost control. I ended up strangling her. The body is discovered a few days later when the unmistakable smell of death wafts over the neighborhood. It was very hot for Rochester in the 90s and close to 100 for, during this stretch. And eventually people outside the house started smelling this really bad odor and could see flies swarming inside the house. Once again, Tony Campione is called to the scene. Me and my partner get called to a house on Emerson Street. She had been in the apartment for some time. They could not get a cause of death due to the extensive decomposition at that point, but it was ruled suspicious. Detectives soon learn Adrian Berger had a boyfriend named Robert Spahalski. So I'm like, is this coincidence or what? Spotted him on the street, uh, picked him up, brought him in, began to talk to him about the Adrian Berger case. And again, he was like, screw you, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, I want a lawyer. But the badly decomposed body makes it impossible to conclusively rule Adrian Berger's death a homicide. Evidentiary-wise, there's still nothing to pin him on. Now, with two deaths to his credit, Robert has finally outdone his twin brother, Stephen. He's bragging to his brother, his twin, saying, look at this, look what I'm doing. But it's not like a normal sibling rivalry. It's, 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 it's weirder than that. There's almost a self-loathing going on that the two of them are engaging in together. They together are the self. And perhaps only Stephen will understand the madness behind what Robert does next. Charles Grandy's 40-year-old, lifelong Rochesterian, beloved by many, had a nice life going, but also was bisexual and was seeking out gay sex in bars in Rochester. And unfortunately for him, one of the fellows he met at a bar was Robert Bruce Spahalski. I'm bisexual. Okay. I mean, I've had bisexual experiences. But sexually, I'm, I'm open to uh, certain heights. 
Charles has sought out Robert for sex before. They went out to his house and they had oral sex with each other. They started arguing. They started shoving each other. And at one point, Robert, he picked up a hammer and hit this guy over the head like three or four times. He caught me at the wrong day. It's an act that echoes Stephen's murder of Ronald Ripley almost 20 years earlier. If you look at the wounds suffered by Ron Ripley and Charles Grandy, they're exactly the same. They are identical. But unlike his brother, Robert knows how to cover his tracks. He turned the heat up in the apartment to speed up the rate of decomposition so the police wouldn't actually know um, how long the body had been there. And once again, police are unable to conclusively tie Robert to the crime scene. It's just ingrained into me. Don't leave evidence behind. You know, clean up after yourself. Cover your tracks. He kept his mouth shut. If you're going to be a successful criminal, you keep your mouth shut, and he did. There's nothing more detectives can do. Robert's three innocent victims are placed on Rochester's list of unsolved homicides. And that's the way it was. I'd spent 15 years in homicide. We were never able to nail him on any of the murders. And then I retired, but I never forgot him. As the months roll into years, Robert's killing seems to stop as quickly as it had begun. But it's only a matter of time before this evil twin kills again. As teenagers, identical twins Robert and Steven Spahalski led lives consumed with sex, drugs, and crime. But now adults, the two share a far worse obsession, murder. I'd see him on the street, and I'd say, hey, Robert, I'd say, uh, you know, when are you going to tell me about these uh, people you've been involved in killing? And he's like, oh, screw you, can't be on. Robert murdered three people in under a year. But he soon slips into a period of relative calm. He's continuing to work on the street, being bike man, delivering his drugs. He's also become HIV positive. He's in need of constant drug monitoring, and he's pretty much handcuffed by his own illness at this point, along with his drug addiction. He needs his dealer, and he needs his doctor. But it won't last forever. This serial killer is about to strike again. It's 2005, and Robert is living on a house in Spencer Street, and he invites over a friend of his, Vivian Arizari. They smoke a lot of crack. And according to Robert, he gets so high that Vivian starts to transform into a demon. And the demon's so scary that it needs to be vanquished. And I seen her as a demon, the worst demon in the world. You know, I hit her in the head with a hammer. After choking her to death, Robert goes completely mad. I suffered a nervous breakdown after Vivian Irizarry. I love that woman. Didn't mean to do that to her. Never in a million years would I think I would ever do something like that. Ironic thing is, they weren't the demon I was. That's, that's what kicks me in my butt. I'm the demon they were. That morning, I bought two $20 bags of crack. And I went and, and, I went and, and uh, watched a porno movie. 
And I said, I got to turn myself in. I knew that I was going to kill some more people. I couldn't control the urge. I just went to the homicide division. High on crack, well, I turned myself in. Robert confesses not just to the murder of Vivian Irizarry, but he admits to killing Moraine Armstrong, Adrian Berger, and Charles Grandy as well. Well, I never thought that this guy was going to tell us what he told us. Listening to somebody confess to a murder over and over and over, it was unbelievable. Detectives now know they're dealing with a different order of criminal. A serial killer is a person that kills three or more people, I believe, by definition. I think we took a serial killer, a very dangerous person, off the street. That's an investigator's dream. I believe he would have killed more people. He would have continued on the path that he was on. Police are convinced his confessions will put him away for life. All that's left to do is tell his identical twin, Stephen. Stephen's reaction was, I thought I was the only murderer in the family. But if Robert did it, then there must have been a good reason for it. Robert Spahalski is charged with four counts of murder. I'd been a prosecutor a long time at that point. It was my job, it was my responsibility to handle that. And in the end, the evidence is overwhelming. The jury was out about three hours, and they convicted him right across the board. Uh, top count on everything. 100 years to life, 25 years to life on each of the four murders to run consecutively. I felt somewhat justified that I was on the right track. I felt gratification knowing that the SOB responsible for the deaths of these three people was going to get his in the end. In the aftermath, experts and officers alike can only wonder what two murderous identical twins can mean. When they go that bad at a young age, there's something tells me there's something in their nature. They're not like you and I. They don't feel guilt. They don't feel remorse. I don't know if there's a genetic link towards that or if there's a propensity for violence. I really don't know. But I've never heard of twin brothers ever both be in prison for murder. And now, Locked the way for the rest of his life, Robert keeps his own theory. I'm schizophrenic. We're both homicidal. Deep down, it can be genetics, definitely. So it's, it's in the realm of possibility. What would you say to him right now? I love you. I miss you. I'm back into my life. 
quince.com slash style. 